Hello everybody, Marshall here again. Guess what? Did you know that you could have listened to this episode over a month ago? If you were only on my Patreon page at patreon.com slash journey into. And did you also know that right now there's a brand new episode of the Outfield Excursions on Patreon right now. It's Rish and I talking about The Man Who Knew Too Much by Alfred Hitchcock from 1934. That might not be the version you're thinking of with Jimmy Stewart and Doris Day. No, this one has Peter Lorre in it as the villain. That's on Patreon right now, along with all kinds of extra goodies on there. (laughs) So if you're interested and you'd like to help support me in this podcast, go over and check it out. You can donate as little as $1 a month. All right, I'll leave you alone and let you get to this episode where we talk about Sean Connery in Meteor. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Outfield Excursions, uh, where we talk about various movies. It could be from last year, it could be from 1947, or it could be 1979, like today's. My name is Marshall Latham, and I always do this with my friend of misery, Rish Outfield. Hey, that's really clever and nice for you to get a plug in there. Uh, Yeah, this is Rish and it is 2021 and it's a new year. It's a new chance for us to podcast and talk and hopefully entertain people out there. This episode notwithstanding. (laughs) Hey, Rish, uh, before we get started, we did get a voicemail for the outfield excursions that I wanted to play for us here. Yeah. From Bria. Obviously. No, this isn't from Bria. This is uh, Keith Techlitz sent us a, a message. And uh, so I thought we'd play it real quick here and then react to it. And then we can talk more about Meteor. Okay. This is Keith Techlitz. I know I promised to call and leave a voicemail for a long time. And here I am after several years actually finally doing it. And unfortunately, it wasn't even Star Wars that got me to do it. It was your Hercules. Outfield Excursions that did it. I just recently watched both of them myself. Uh, got them from the library and watched them both. And I do have to say that, yes, although the rock version was better, the other version with Scott Atkins was not as awful as I thought it was going to be. I uh, just wish there was more Scott Atkins in it, because by far was he phenomenal in that movie. Uh and there, you can just never get enough Scott Atkins. I actually like several of his movies. But anyways, I just called and wanted to say that. And I'm looking forward to seeing what other things you have to watch and talk about. I'm interested to hear what you have to say about Artemis Fowl. My entire family watched that. And, uh, yeah, I'll save that for afterwards. Anyways, thanks for all that you guys do. I really appreciate it. And journey on. Bye. Yeah, so there's Keith. Uh, Likes Scott Atkins. Uh, I wonder if we should do another Scott Atkins film. Now, sorry, remind me, did you know who Scott Atkins was? I didn't know until we watched this movie, but 
once you mentioned who he was, I looked it up and I had seen a Chinese movie with him in it. Uh, the Wolf Warrior movie that he was in. He was the bad guy in that movie. Uh, but you had said that he was in a bunch of them. Well, he was he's a martial artist. But I don't think I had seen anything that he was in. It's like he's in the like Ip Man. He's in uh, Asian things. Um, he is in Doctor Strange. He's one of Mads Mikkelsen's followers. You know, he has like four guys oh, that he's right. with all the time. But I can't even remember what that character's name was. Yeah, uh, I have no clue. <laughs> you know who I'm talking mm. about, though. I do. Yeah. 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 So that might be interesting to look into more. He was so over the top, I remember, in uh, Legend of Hercules that uh, we had a good time reenacting some of his scenes. <laughs> yeah. I, I, okay, so it, it is fun. The, the thing that was fun about the Hercules thing was that I expected both movies to be bad, and it and because I expected them to be bad, I uh, I enjoyed watching them. I didn't have like an emotional investment in the movies. Yeah, it's when you go see something that you're really really hoping is good. You know, you want to be moved. You want to. Uh, be elevated or, or or whatever it is and and it lets you down that that a movie can really bother you and yeah stuff like this where it's like let's watch the dueling hercules movies uh <laughs> that's that's not gonna but like looking at this guy's filmography it's all just like direct-to-video action movies with titles like zero tolerance ninja <laughs> shadow of a tear Assassination Games, The Tournament, Eliminators, Avengement. <laughs> There's a movie called Avengement. I don't know that that's even a word. <laughs> they probably would have used Avenger, but uh, that's been taken. Accident Man, The Debt Collector, Savage Dog. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, maybe I'll add one of those to a poll at some point for people to vote on. Yeah, we just need to make like a big list of uh, of movies to check out. And it, it's helpful when the library has them because you can just go there and get it and not have to have spend any money and not worry about how long it takes you to return it, you know, if, if you're paying Netflix things. We had talked about maybe doing another disaster movie and... Maybe at some point we'll just ask people what, what they want us to watch. But he mentioned Artemis Fowl. And I got to say, we tried to watch that, or we tried to do that for this show months ago, yeah. like six months ago. And I could not get my nephews to see it. It, If I were as persistent about like getting girls to go out with me as I had been with my nephews and Artemis Fowl... <laughs> uh, I couldn't podcast you with you right now because I'd have two dates at the same time, like Alex P. Keaton at prom. And I just, <laughs> nice. I, I will, I'd bug him again and again. And at some point my sister says, boys, why don't you just sit down and watch this movie that Rich wants you to watch with him? What, what is it? And, and my oldest nephew is like, nah. And I, I just, yeah, I don't, I, what, I don't know what it is about Artemis Fowl that doesn't appeal to them, but it's made for their age group. And they yeah. don't 
They don't want to see it. Do they like fantasy things like elves and fairies and trolls and that kind of stuff? Well, they, they liked Trolls World Tour. Hmm. <laughs> and they like like the How to Train Your Dragon movies. Oh, okay. So. I don't know that that has fairies in it, but yeah, you know, I, I just... It looked like a movie that would be appealing. It had a strong ad campaign, I thought. Uh, and when it came out and they dumped it to, to Disney+, Plus, we all thought, well, that means it's really bad. But here we are eight months later or whatever, and everything is dumped to streaming now, whether it's good or bad. So if you want me to just sit down and watch it by myself, I will. I'd have to rewatch it again, too. We watched it. I watched it with my family when it first came out. But, uh, yeah, it's been long enough where I'd, I'd have to catch it again. I don't know. We'll, we'll kick it around and, and maybe we'll we'll come back to Artemis Fowl. If we get enough uh, other people requesting it, maybe maybe we'll do that one. Okay. Good enough. Let, let's let's talk about giant rocks in space. Yes. Let's do that. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Keith. I appreciate the voicemail. Uh, feel free to send us another one. We'll we'll feature you here again. <laughs> thanks, Keith. Yeah, we, we our last episode of 2020, we featured a movie with Sean Connery in it because he recently passed away on Halloween of last year. And we reviewed uh, Marnie, which was an Alfred Hitchcock movie. But in trying to figure out what we were going to talk about when we talked about Marnie, we saw you know pretty much all of the movies that he's been in. And of course, some of them are, you can't escape like... James Bond movies or Indiana Jones and the uh, Last Crusade, things like that, that everybody knows, Hunt for Red October, all that kind of stuff. But there's a lot of other obscure films that I've never seen or heard of. And uh, Meteor was the one that jumped to my mind. Yeah, you mentioned, have you seen Meteor? And I remember... That they used to show it on ABC, and, and and I remember how vivid. No, sorry, I vividly remember the commercial for it, and it's like ABC's Sunday movie of the week, Meteor, and they played this noise, and then showed this really terrible optical effect of a rock uh, coming toward the camera, and. That's all I remember. I just remember seeing those commercials over and over again. ABC, Sunday Movie of the Week, Meteor. And so I had never seen it either, but I was aware of the film. And so uh, I, would, I was happy to, to try and track it down. And you said, you don't even have to track it down. It's on YouTube, the whole movie. And <laughs> yeah, I was not aware that full movies were on YouTube. I, I, I thought you had to pay extra for stuff like that. But it's right there. Maybe you can put a link if people want to watch it. It's not going to cost them anything, but, uh, you know, two and a half hours. I was more than happy to watch it uh, up until the point when I started to watch it. (laughs) Well, it starts off with a little science lesson, which is kind of interesting. I'd never seen a movie start that way. The asteroid belt. A vast junkyard of metal and rock orbiting the sun between Jupiter and Mars. Thousands of fragments, some as small as a fist, some as large as a city. And amongst these 
Orpheus. Twenty miles in diameter and undisturbed for countless generations. Until now. Um, but yeah, it's it's almost like the old film strip videos. That's how the movie starts, which I thought was pretty interesting. Now, you said it was on ABC, but this was a feature film that played in theaters, right? It wasn't a TV movie. Right. I I wouldn't have memories from 1979. But yeah, it just it, it was one of their Sunday movies of the week. They, yeah. you know, they would have a, a movie every week and all week long they would advertise it. And you would see like the same, you know, a- ABC owned the rights to certain movies and they would take advantage of that. And I remember, you know, they would always do Bond films and they would do like Dr. No and say, see the movie that started it all. Dr. No, Bond, James Bond. And it was the same commercial. They'd show it multiple times a year. But there was something... Um, charming about that about seeing you know like the mikey life serial commercial played for over a decade and the the idea of a commercial playing for that long it's just people couldn't stand that now people are sick of a commercial a week later now but back then it was just a simpler time and i don't know i i i miss stuff like that this movie was directed by a guy named ronald neem and he is most famous for directing the Poseidon Adventure. Right. Uh, you know, a disaster movie in... Uh, any idea when Poseidon Adventure was? Was it like 72 or something like that? It was, yeah, like 72, 73, 74, somewhere in there. It was before this one, so... Yeah, there, there was this big stretch of disaster movies in the 1970s. I, you know, Towering Inferno was a big one. Earthquake was, was a, a, a big one. Irwin Allen produced a lot of these and they would get a big group of, of stars to play all these parts. And then, you know, the disaster is coming and who survives and how do they survive it? Uh, there was airport and airport was so successful that they made sequel after sequel right. of, of those. And this was at the very tail end of that. This is 1979, but it feels like, it's one of those movies from back then. It does. You brought up the uh, Poseidon, Poseidon Adventure. And yeah, I don't know how many times I saw that on television. Because they replayed that one over and over again as well. I don't know how many times I saw Ernest Bergnine and uh, Shelley Winters <laughs> going trying to get through the uh, chaos in the Upside Down ship. That's a really good movie, actually. I <laughs> I saw it again like 2019 or something, really, really recently. And it holds up. And the fact that characters that you like die makes it way, m- m- way more effective than those movies that play it safe, where you know right from the beginning who's going to live and who's going to die. Yeah. This... This movie, like I said, uh, was 79, so that's two years after Star Wars. And Star Wars really changed everything for the way that movies were made, the movies were marketed, and, uh, you know, the bottom line on science fiction especially. But this does not feel like it was two years after Star Wars. Yeah. Well, when did Close Encounters come out? It was, was it 79 It was the also? same year. It was, it was winter of 77. Oh, okay. Yeah, and that changed things quite a bit, too. I mean, 
not quite the way Star Wars did, but I mean, there was groundbreaking special effects there too, I think. Yeah, I had, I, I wasn't even thinking of the special effects, but, but yes, the special, and maybe I should just put my cards on the table right now. The special effects in this movie are awful. And there, <laughs> there's moments where I just wonder, well, how, why, why does this look so terrible? Most of them are just miniatures, but they look like miniatures. They look like they're little tiny things. And then they will print them that mat them against other objects and you can see the mat lines and it just doesn't work at all. The, the, the only special effect that I think works is this big, ugly rock that they have slowly rotating against a black right. background <laughs> and they show it over and over and over and over again. And, and because it's so ugly, it works, <laughs> but I don't know what kind of budget this thing had. I'm sure there's a way to look it up and find out, but I'll bet it had a comparable budget to Star Wars. And yet it just, it, every time there's a special effect, it takes me out of the movie. It makes me think, oh, okay, this is 1969, not 1970. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I was watching a, a clip, uh, Siskel and Ebert reviewed it. And can he guess if they liked it or not? <laughs> I would think they didn't. They did not. The, both of them thumbs down. They they had a lot of fun uh, making fun of. I think Roger Ebert um, said he wasn't sure if he'd rather talk about the movie or make a sandwich. <laughs> so I thought that was pretty funny. Oh, great special effects. I've seen better planetoids on Roger Ramjet. Looks like they spent a couple of days out on the back lot with a used camera, a bag of rubber rocks, and a 49-cent watercolor set from Kmart. <laughs> He said it was the worst disaster movie he'd ever seen. He said, and that even includes Hurricane, which I haven't seen Hurricane, so I don't know how to compare that. But No, but we should put it on our list. <laughs> we should. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll jump in every once in a while with things that I remember, but let's talk a little bit about what happens in the movie and then just the amazing cavalcade of stars and you know in 1979 most of these people would have been much bigger stars than they are 40 years later right but uh there were a ton of faces i recognized yeah me too and some of them i had to think now where do i know that guy from and i had to look it up and say oh okay that guy's he was the main lawyer the main guy in la law you know <laughs> things like that so uh, oh is that richard dysart yeah richard dysart <laughs> i was like he looks so familiar but um, so yeah, let's see. Uh, I think we can. So, uh, we we definitely should not go through this um, plot point by plot point because there's just not a lot of plot. <laughs> it's pretty simple. So let let's try something here. Uh, you start a timer when I start talking, and I'll try to sum this whole movie plot up as fast as I can. Okay, you really want me to? Yeah, yeah. Let's see how fast I can. I mean, I'm not going to speak fast, but. I'll just try to sum it up pretty quickly. Okay, on your mark, get set, and start. Okay, so Sean Connery plays a scientist named Paul Bradley, and Carl Malden plays a scientist called Harry Sherwood, but you don't even care what their names are. They're two scientists. They worked on a project called Hercules, which was setting nuclear missiles out in space in orbit around Earth in order to protect it against a meteor or anything else coming at the Earth through space. Eventually it was turned into a weapons program against Russia. Russia 
has done the same thing. They also have a rocket system out in space. Now a meteor is coming to destroy the Earth. They know it's coming. They know how long it's going to take and how fast it is and how big it is. And they have to find a way to work with the Russians to get the to destroy this meteor before it kills everything on Earth. And so eventually they get a Russian scientist to come over and they work together and send the missiles out and eventually destroy the meteor. But there are smaller meteors that wreak havoc throughout the world before that. And um, they end up buried under the earth for and we don't know if they're going to survive but eventually they do <laughs> that was probably not quick enough well that was one minute and 26 seconds oh that's not bad yeah I, i'm surprised that you could well maybe i shouldn't be the, there's not a lot of plot but there's tons of scenes and dialogue and drama going on in this movie and one of the things that i really liked about it is that they've got these Russian characters who are played by Americans. Right. But Brian Keith plays this Russian scientist who is the equivalent, the Soviet Union's equivalent to Sean Connery's character. But except for one sentence, his whole performance is in Russian. And Natalie Wood plays his translator and sort of the love interest for Sean Connery. And she speaks both Russian and English and has a Russian accent through the whole movie. And I liked that. I was impressed by that, especially Brian Keith's stuff. I mean, obviously, he's not fluent in Russian. Yeah. He's just saying all this stuff phonetically, you know, kind of thing. But that seems like dedication and that seems like some, a step they wouldn't have to take if they didn't want to. And there's all of this politics, all of this stuff about... Well, you know, if the Russians had a weapon like that out in space, and we're not saying they do, then, you know, that kind of stuff. And the, what's his name? Martin Landau plays this military leader, this this guy, you know, guy that's in charge of the military. And he absolutely does not want to cooperate with the Russians. And he doesn't want the Russians to know our secrets or be in on this or any decision making. And he's super paranoid I would like to go on record that I consider allowing the Russians to come into this center to be a grave error, which one day the United States may bitterly regret. He's basically the bad guy after the meteor itself. And Landau is such an ugly, frog-faced dude. I, I like him. <laughs> I've always thought that he was a cool actor, but he's just not like a leading man kind. Of. He just He's always so sour in this movie. And he gets an arc, basically, where... You know, he's super mistrustful and he's like, yeah, they're, you know, they're going to use this to take us all over and we're all, all of our freedoms gone out. And, and, you know, it's better that we die than then the Soviets win. And, and then eventually he realizes that he's wrong and he comes back and he's like, you know, okay, they're, they're people too. And, you know, it, we need their help. We need to cooperate if we're going to survive. And, and I liked that. I, I thought that his character was interesting. Yeah. Yeah. What do you know Martin Landau from? I mean, I know who he is. I've seen him my whole life, or at least my young life. And uh, But I well, can't think Landau's, of a single thing that I remember him in. <laughs> so. Yeah, his claim to fame was that he was the star. He and his wife were the stars of Mission Impossible, which started in 1966. 
by Desilu, and eventually he left the show and other people took over. Uh, Leonard Nimoy, after uh, Star Trek ended, went on to Mission Impossible. He took over Martin Landau's part. Well, you know, the, 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 the scientist role kind of thing needed to be. I, I remember him most famously as an older man. He played Bella Lugosi in Ed Wood. Oh, okay. And he won an Oscar for that. But, you know, he was in some Woody Allen movies. He's, he's, as an older man, he's always going to play the father or the grandfather or the old lawyer or or something like that. But he, uh, yeah, I'm trying to think of a mo- a big hit movie <laughs> that everybody would know Landau from. <laughs> and I, yeah, it's not coming to mind. That's what I was trying to come up with, and I couldn't do it. I f- had forgotten about Mission Impossible. So yeah, maybe we could go through the different uh, cast members here, unless you wanted to touch something else before that. No, no, I, I'm just jumping around talking about the things that I liked about it uh, before we get to the, all the stuff that we didn't like, like Connery's hair. Oh. <laughs> so like you said, Natalie Wood uh, played the Russian interpreter, and then she did become the love interest for uh, Connery's character. I was a telephone operator at a center for control of flight in the Cosmodrome by Kanur in Middle Asia. I knew your language because... When I was a child, my mother kept giving me books in English and telling me that one day I would be grateful to her. I suppose I am. I hadn't seen... I mean, I know she, you know, died in a mysterious accident out on a boat or whatever, and there's a whole bunch of speculation and stuff about the events surrounding her death. Um, But she was a pretty big deal. And that would have been right after this, right? Yeah, yeah. It was very soon after this. I think it was 81 or something like that. Yeah, she was a child actress. She was the little girl in Miracle on 34th Street right. that didn't believe in Santa. And then, you know, she was in West Side Story. She had a a big career as a young woman. A rebel without a cause. Oh, right. But yeah, she, she died fairly young. Uh, and so... I don't want to say she's not relevant anymore, but I'm sure she would have been in a lot of movies in the 80s had she survived. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Then we have, I I mentioned uh, Carl Malden as one of the scientists, the one that had worked with Connery previously. (laughs) And every time I saw him in this movie, I said, seriously, that mustache? You're going with that mustache? (laughs) He had a little Hitler mustache. And uh, I don't know if that was big in the 70s, but man, he looked goofy with that mustache. Malden was also a really strange looking guy. You know, he was famous for how big his nose was. And he always played like the cop or the the best friend or the partner in the law firm or whatever. He was a he was not a leading man. Right. But I, I really only knew him from the commercials that he did. He did credit card commercials throughout the 80s. American Express Traveler's Checks. Don't leave home without them. And yeah, if you asked me, well, what is what is Malden known for? I, I wouldn't be able to tell you. Well, he's in the famous scene, right, from the uh, the waterfront, on the waterfront? Oh, he's the, the other guy with Marlon Brando in the uh, I Could Have Been a Contender scene? I think so. That's what I remember. He was where he got his break or whatever was in that movie. Okay, yeah, he, he won an Oscar for that. He was in Patton. He was in How the West Was Won, Streetcar Named Desire. And then there was a TV series called The Streets of San Francisco that went from 72 to 77. And I 
think that's the show where Michael Douglas got his start, right? He was the partner to Carl Malden on that show, is it? Yeah, I don't know. I never did watch that show. But uh, and then you you had mentioned Brian Keith, and every time I see him, I just think of parent the old Disney Parent Trap. <laughs> yeah, me too. That's what I know him from. Uh, my wife remembered him. No, I can't. I'm gonna have to look it up. But uh, he was in a, a sitcom, My Three Sons, or something like that. But it wasn't My Three Sons. Family Affair. Family Affair. Yeah, my wife remembered him from Family Affair. So, but that just tells you, you know, he's he's an older actor. That. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in the '80s, he was on a show called Hardcastle oh, and yeah. McCormick. Did you ever watch that? I did. That was good. I like that. Um, so yeah, he's. He was a veteran actor by this time. And then uh, we talked about Martin Landau. And then Trevor Howard. What's the first thing that comes to your mind with Trevor Howard? Trevor Howard is one of the elders in Superman that goes, guilty. (laughs) Exactly. Yep. Guilty. (laughs) That's the first thing I think of, too. (laughs) I'm sure he had other roles, but I just, that's the movie I know Trevor (laughs) Howard from. Oh, he's Krypton Elder. Three, you know. Um, he actually was the king in the uh, Sword of the Valiant that we did. Oh, right. <laughs> and I'm sure we mentioned Gelte. We there probably too, right? did. I, I, yeah. His whole performance in this movie in Meteor is on a TV screen. His scenes have already been filmed and they're actually being shown on a television. And then Connery and the others have to interact with this recording of... Trevor Howard, Uh, and usually it works, but it's just they didn't have the capability of screen-to-screen communication back then, so they just had to wing it to make it look like they were seeing each other. Yeah, because he was like in, what, Great Britain or something like that? He was the guy they were talking to there, because they were talking to people all around the world. Yeah, that was fun. They'd just jump from country to country to get their coverage of what was going on. Because the whole world is threatened by this huge rock. Uh, There's a couple other guys that if you grew up in the 70s, you'd recognize. But Richard Dysart was the Secretary of Defense. And yeah, I remember him from L.A. Law. So do I. Yeah. He was really good on L.A. Law. I mean, everybody was good on L.A. Law, but that's what I know him from. We're really catching the millennial crowd on this one. (laughs) Well... It's a yeah, like I said, it's a forty-two-year-old movie now, and you have to have had a huge career like Connery for a young, a Gen Z to know who you are. Yeah, it's uh, every year I get older and less relevant. You know, like sometimes somebody will be on the Jimmy Fallon show, and it's like coming up so and so, and I'll be like, oh, I've I've no idea who that is. And as I get older, more and more names are going to be like that. But uh, I remember as a kid, Pete, Johnny Carson would have all of these has-been celebrities on his show. And I, I had no idea who any of them were. But, you know, of course, my parents would know who they were. Yeah, they were has-been to us. But to our parents, they were contemporary or whatever. Yeah, go, go ahead and mention the, the big one, the big other actor that's in this. Yeah, Henry Fonda plays the president of the U.S., so what you're telling me is that even if we admit to Hercules, and I give you my permission to realign the rockets, we still need more firepower, more nuclear megatonnage, more rockets? That's right, Mr. President. Well, Mr. Secretary, do we have more rockets? 
Not in space, sir. And what the hell are we supposed to do? Conjure them out of air? And he, every one of his scenes is really good. I, he, of course, he's a great actor, but uh, it's just weird to see such a bad movie with all of these great actors and stuff in it. And you know, maybe it was just that the time, you know, that hey, can we get you in here for for a day or half a day to do these scenes, and then uh, you're out of here, and here's your paychecks. But uh, I guess, but like you said. At the time, disaster movies were kind of a big deal, or at least just before this. Maybe this movie killed it finally. But <laughs> yeah, usually that's what it happens: is that somebody spends a lot of money on a movie, and it fails, or many someone's do in the case of a big genre, and then, and so they just stop making that kind of movie, and then somebody will come ten, twenty, thirty years later and make another one, and. And they try and start it all again. You know, we did have a, a spate of disaster movies in the, the 90s. Yeah. And uh, we've talked about them before, you know, the Dante's Peaks and the Volcanoes and the Armageddons. and uh, The Day uh, the Earth Stood Still. Was no. that in the 90s? Oh, I'm sorry. No. What was I thinking of? Oh, The Day After Tomorrow. That's the movie I was thinking of. Right. Yeah. It's 2012. What was the good asteroid film? Uh, Deep Impact. Deep Impact. Yeah, the, I, I, we could name a bunch more. Twister was a huge hit. Oh, yeah. And then, yeah, eventually they stopped making money or they just got too expensive. Or, or like Roland Emmerich's movies, they just burned everybody out. Yeah, I guess Independence Day could be considered a disaster movie, but it's mixed with sci-fi. So, But yeah, Henry Fonda was probably a big pull back in 1979. I mean, he was an old man. He died in, I want to say, 82, or uh, yeah, or maybe it was 81, because On Golden Pond came out, and he won uh, the Oscar for that, but he was already dying. He couldn't show up. So I think Jane Fonda accepted for him, and then he died. The old poop. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then the, the last name that I recognize, but I recognize his face more than his name, was uh, Joseph Campanella. I recognize the name, but remind me who that is. Well, again, he's one of those actors that I just know him from. He was on everything. I think he was probably on Love Boat episodes and Fantasy Island episodes. And I think he was in a a soap opera for a lot of years, too. And he might have shown up on Falcon Crest and just, you know, just one of those actors that was just in a bunch of stuff in TV back in in the 70s. I don't know. I think he had very many big movie roles but he was huge in television oh i guess he was in manix which was a early late 60s early 70s uh tv show that i've heard of but never seen and he was the lead actor in that but but yeah I, as soon as i saw that face I, oh that guy <laughs> i've seen him all over the place um i don't know did you recognize any other cast members well connery's ex-wife he ha- she has this one scene on the phone with him and she uh, is Bibby Bash. She played Carol Marcus in, in Wrath of Khan in the second Star Trek oh, movie. Oh, really? And huh. I love Wrath of Khan. So anybody that had anything to do with it, I, I'm excited about. And and then, yeah, the, the, there's this one thing that I, I had to talk about because the movie wastes like three minutes of its runtime on this skier where it just shows the skier come down a mountain and you follow her. As she's skiing, <laughs> and then she finishes skiing, 
She takes off her skis and she walks into a lodge and you follow her walking into the lodge. And then she gets together with a, a group of friends and you see them socialize. And then, you know, the disaster hits and there's this big avalanche. But just at that was it, it's this the most pointless waste of time in the movie. It's it's unbelievably long. And that was Sybil Danning, who would go on to be in like a bunch of fantasy films and really sleazy pr- uh, women's prison movies and things like that. <laughs> um, so, I, yes, yeah, sorry, I, I, I recognized Sybil Danning there, uh, her name. But it just the I, I don't get that scene with the, the skier thing. It's like the television version of Superman the movie where they put in all of the de- the, the deleted footage right. so they could stretch it to 4 hours. Maybe that's a good segue into the uh all the disaster scene, the different disaster scenes that happen because yeah, there's there's in the Alps where a meteor crashes and causes causes an avalanche and kills a bunch of people. It's because the all of these little pieces have broken off of the big meteor. And they're coming faster, I guess, or sooner. And the threat is this great big one. If it hits us, the, our world is done. But all of these little ones pose a great danger, but there's not really anything we can do about them because we're focused on obliterating this giant rock. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so the the shards, the little pieces, are there really just to give us what we were paying for, which is to see huge swaths of destruction on the earth so that when they destroy this giant one, you're still satisfied. Right. Yeah. Cause I mean, that's, I guess the bread and butter of these movies, right. Is you get to see things getting destroyed and people getting killed and uh, how are they going to get out of it? And Yeah. The, the thing that has dated this movie even more than the special effects is that the World Trade Center is destroyed by one of these shards. It is, yeah, I noticed that, yeah. And that's almost at the very end of the movie, because uh, almost all of the action takes place in New York. There's this command center that's underneath the New York subway, down down underground. Uh, and when this piece hits right there in New York, it sort of buries everything, and you get to see all this destruction up on the surface, and then tons of water pours down. That was actually a really impressive scene because all of this water floods the uh, the the installation that they're in. But it's right. gross brown water. Like it really would be. Like muddy, um, goopy. Yeah. Almost. Yeah. I enjoyed that. Yeah, because they, you know, like you said, they, they destroy the meteor. The earth doesn't get hit by the giant rock that's coming the rockets are able to destroy it so they have to have some drama so all these all these smaller pieces but the one like you're talking about that hits manhattan that that comes out of nowhere it's like all these other ones are like oh we're watching this you know it's going to hit somewhere but i remember <laughs> i remember laughing at the scene where you know Sean Connery's talking to somebody on the phone or on the the screen or whatever and uh, they're like, oh, there's there's another big one. It's it's coming toward you guys. We've picked up another splinter, a big one. Direction? The United States, the eastern seaboard. You mean us? Near enough. Yes, and he's like, when is it due to arrive? And he's like, 
right now. <laughs> and then the next scene is you see, you know, destruction and everything up above. It's like, what? They didn't know it was coming before right now? Yeah, see, that's – and the timing is just terrible on that because – the Russians, their, their uh, rockets are called Peter the Great, right? And ours is called Hercules. Right. And because Peter the Great is closer to the, the, the asteroid, they have to fire first. And then we have to wait 40 minutes before we fire ours. And that's when this asteroid, the, the shard, comes for New York. Is during this period where it's like, okay, now we have to wait. <laughs> um I, I really oh. enjoyed the timing that that this shard had. It 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 was planned really really well. <laughs> yeah, it was like like Jaws or something. But so speaking about that, so there's this huge scene where they have to turn the satellites to face out into space and go after the meteor. Oh, the meteor. <laughs> <laughs> Got to put in my sound effect there. So the entire scene is you're seeing these models of the satellites and the um, rockets turning. And then you see computer graphics that they're looking at to show that it's turning. And you see all these serious faces staring at monitors. And then you see, you know, it kind of goes back and forth between these things. And so I, I uh, checked the index, the time index, oh, as no. I was watching it. And it's an entire five minutes of serious faces to graphics to the space scenes where the thing is turning. <laughs> it's like, holy cow, there's nothing going on in this scene other than that. And it's uh, like an entire five minutes that you're standing there. Yeah. Another movie that came out in 1979 you can guess what I'm going to mention, right? Oh, right. Yep. Star Star Trek: <laughs> The Motion Picture came out in '79, and it had it was notorious for having these extended special effects scenes where the music plays and people just look, and then you watch it. But the difference between motion picture and meteor <laughs> is. That the music was awesome in Star Trek, the motion picture. It was Jerry Goldsmith, you know, and you're just, wow, it was really great music. And the special effects were awesome. They were, you know, Industrial Light and Magic or whatever became Industrial Light and Magic at the peak of their talent. It was just super, super long and extended, and they didn't get a chance to edit any, or Robert Wise didn't get a chance to edit it down, and so it's interminable. But this was that, but with terrible bargain basement special effects and a score by Lawrence Rosenthal that is just really, really bad. And I had mentioned, okay, so Star Wars came out in 77, and Star Wars had a budget of $10 million. And this came out in 79, and its budget was $15.4 million. So it Holy cost cow. almost 1.5 times what Star Wars cost. And these special effects are awful. I, I, I can't stress it enough. There are moments where it 
it doesn't look like miniatures. It looks like somebody built this thing out of like blocks and Legos. And then we're watching it, you know, being filmed with a camcorder or something. Right. At, yeah. Yeah. Boy, where'd they spend their money? Holy cow. They must've been on the even, cast. Well, probably on this cast, I guess. And, and that spectacular avalanche scene is from a 1978 movie called Avalanche with Mia Farrow in it. So they didn't spend anything on that. Oh, that's it's terrible. Just, I, it must be the cast getting all of these people that are, you know, were, were, were known commodities in those days. Whereas, you know, obviously the most expensive person in Star Wars is going to be Peter Cushing. Or Alec Guinness, right? Maybe. I don't know. Guinness was done by then, you know? His his career was at an end. The amount of time that these special effects are on the screen, too, though, feels like somebody in the editing room said, oh, this is gold. Yeah. We spent so much money on this, we've got to feature every single one of these things. Because if you light a model correctly, it can look so much bigger than it actually is. But they didn't light. I mean, it was like just house lights are turned on and you can say, oh, okay, I can see exactly how big that rocket that we're (laughs) seeing is. I think that's probably about two and a half feet long from the very beginning to the, the end. And it never looks any bigger than that. I'm not sure how this thing happened, except for that the budget ballooned because they did reshoots on the special effects. So, so this was even better than it originally had been. And the, the amount, like you said, the amount of time that they spend, you know, I talked about the one scene when the satellites are turning and then the rockets take off. And then, you know, how many times do we go back and see the uh, rockets flying through space, but not like a exciting, you know, as it goes by, past the camera super fast. It's very slow, you know, like. <laughs> and I guess, you know, that's just their ch- the choice they made. But, man, I should have done it timed every time they were showing these model shots of the meteors or the rockets. But the, in Star Trek, the motion picture, when you see V'ger, occasionally there is this really uh, jarring synthesizer chord. And in Meteor, whenever they show this rock, they they make a very similar sound. (laughs) If you had seen that in the theater, you would probably jump every time they played it because it's it's awful. It's dissonant. It's just it's a it's a grating sound. But I felt like it worked in Star Trek The Motion Picture because it's an alien intelligence. It's unknowable. It's, you know, what does it want? Why is it coming to Earth? And in this, it's just, it's irritating. It's like, oh, no, there's that giant baked potato again. (laughs) Well, and it's and it's more subtle in uh, Star Trek, the motion picture. I mean, yeah, it's it's loud, but there's other things, you know, there's other music that it's blending into and other things going on. We're here, you know, these two guys are talking or they're all sleeping while they're watching the satellites. And then all of a sudden, (laughs) (laughs) see the meteor kind of, it's like jarring, you know? So, yeah, I have a note in here. It says, is this Star Trek, the motion picture? (laughs) Um, One other movie that came out in 79 
was Alien, Ridley Scott's Alien. Wow. And that looks so good, even 40 years later. Like all the scenes with the monster, all the scenes with the ship, the production design and all of that. It's impossible to believe that that's the same year as Meteor. Yeah. Part of it is that Meteor was made by AIP, American International Pictures, and they were famous. It was Samuel Arkoff's company. They were famous for being the drive-in movie studio. They would produce B-movies and schlock and really bad sci-fi, really bad horror that were intended to be the B-feature after whatever the A-movie was that the studio provided. And they made a lot of money by doing the Edgar Allan Poe adaptations for Roger Corman. Uh, They were done on the cheap, but they were successful. They were well done enough because Corman was a talented filmmaker when he first started. He could do a lot on no budget at all. But they financed this movie, and then the Shaw brothers in China co-financed this movie. Hmm. And so it it feels way more rinky-dink than a studio film would, if you know what I mean. Well, that that might explain another thing that I noticed while watching the movie was that the typhoon in Hong Kong, that whole scene about that, that was like head and shoulders above all the other little scene. You know, you got the... There was a meteor in Siberia. There was other things. And then we talked about the one in the Swiss Alps. But this Hong Kong one was done a lot better. Or it seemed to be like somebody, whoever the second unit director was, really cared about these scenes. And there was just a lot of weird things. Like, you know, there's panic in the streets. People are running, trying to get up onto high ground. And they have this little narrative where there's this young family that's trying to escape. But all these people run past this one scene and then a kid comes back and grabs an apple off this <laughs> cart or whatever and then runs off. Just this little thing. And then, uh, you know, there's more panic or whatever. And then it pans over to this cockatoo that's sitting on this uh, post or whatever. It's all by himself, just kind of squawking there. And it holds the camera there for a little bit. And then it goes off. And it just seemed like... You know, whoever was in charge of the Hong Kong scenes, you know, was really cared about what was going on and and tried to do all these little narratives and stuff. I thought that was interesting. Well, that was probably shot in Hong Kong by the Shaw brothers as a second unit sort of thing. And they cared a lot more (laughs) about their their portion of the filming, I guess. Yeah. You know, a lot of times second unit can take its time. Because they don't have actors that they have to deal with getting them out on location or whatever. It's just like, okay, it's going to take us all day to set up this shot, but that's all right. Because that's what second unit is for. That's my guess. I don't know. I, it's hard to even remember that scene. But it is clever the way they did that with the shards. So that something would be happening leading up to the weight of the big missile. Yeah. Uh, in the end of the movie, so the... The shard hits New York and the subway sort of collapses on top of this installation. Is that fair to say that's what happens? Yeah. Yeah. They get trapped down there, but they find a way out through the subway. And some of the characters die then, like Carl Malden dies and he has a cool death scene. Uh, and it's one of those where, you know, you're, the hero is trying to get everybody out, but he can't save everyone. 
And uh, I felt like this was a scene that worked really well. A uh, part of it was just, you know, because they were doing it with practical effects. There's actual water, whatever set that they had built, they were flooding the set. It seemed super unpleasant. You know what I mean? It's not just a swimming pool that they're doing this in. And then, yeah, some of these characters that we've gotten to know and gotten to like die. And I liked that. Yeah, there, it, it felt more like a Poseidon adventure kind of thing. Like there was this character that you just barely got to know. He was playing chess with the Russian scientist and doing a couple other things. But when when uh, the installation first crushed in, the, this guy, his legs were were hit by a beam or something like that. But he survived and they were giving him aid. But then they all had to crawl out, you know, like you said, through the subway. And there were, you know, people that were carrying him and helping him along the way. But at some point when the water just kept coming in and coming in, eventually they just had to let him go. And uh, I really cared about that guy. <laughs> I was like, oh man, the poor guy. He's just going to lay there and drown, you know. Uh, so that was kind of cool. I mean, not cool. Not good for him. But No, but I, I I understand. That's That's what I said. I liked it when the people died. But I didn't mean I liked it when the people died. I meant... It worked for me. The the you you felt it. It was well done. And then here's another thing. I feel like the screenplay was actually pretty good. Like the dialogue was witty, and it seemed very well thought out and you know scientifically plausible. And the character dynamics worked really well. It was just a badly made movie and really badly paced. And then of course those special effects are just death. Yeah. To a movie like this, anything where you can't suspend your disbelief anymore ruins a movie like this. You have to believe that that rock is really going to kill us. Yeah, there was a really good scene. It was kind of a comedic scene, uh, but it was when the Russian scientists first arrived and they go in this room with, and the general is there, Martin Landau, and he has an interpreter. And then Natalie Wood is there as the Russian scientist interpreter. And so they're trying to have a conversation, but both interpreters are interpreting at the same time. That scene, I thought, was pretty well written. 14 rockets, each carrying a 100 megaton bomb. Welcome to New York, Dr. Dubov. I'm glad you're here. Must we have everything in duplicate? It's a recognized procedure. How else do we know we're being interpreted properly? I think we could all start by uh, trusting each other. Otherwise, what's the point? And if it's a matter of choosing, I'll take the pretty one. <laughs> yeah, they, they wanted to make sure that they were accurately translating what each other was saying. And that, so they had a redundancy in there. And, and I guess that makes sense. But the thing is, translation doesn't really work like that. They wouldn't both be speaking simultaneously word for word. Right. <laughs> because tra translation is interpreting the way that somebody is trying to express themselves into, you know, trying to convey the meaning and there's multiple ways that you could do that. There's, it would be just impossible to have two people speaking simultaneously uh, and understand both of them. Yeah. 
this sort of makes me want to watch a, a, another disaster movie with you, maybe something better. Um, although it's possible that there are worse ones out there too. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> well, there were things in this one. I mean, you know, I'm sure you know the backstory of of Airplane, that it pretty much scene for scene copying the movie Zero Hour. But of course, they throw in all the comedy bits, and they but some of the some of the scenes are very very similar in there. I, I think you could do a a meteor type. Uh, movie where you pretty much do it word for word or not word but scene by scene and and make fun of it one of the scenes early on was carl malden and sean connery were trying to convince you know the secretary of state and all the all these different generals of what they needed to do with the hercules rockets everybody was saying no no we can't do this we can't do that we're gonna get exposed by the russians and all this stuff so sean connery gets mad and (laughs) storms out I don't give a damn what Russia says about America, or vice versa. I told you what's going to happen when that meteor hits. But if you think you can prevent it by burying your heads under a blanket of shit, fine. If you ever reach a decision, I'll be in the bar across the street. And uh, Carl Malden eventually follows him there in this bar. And they, they're talking about it, and he says, well... You know what? What do you think is going to happen? What What can we do to to get this to work? And then Carl Malden goes into this whole thing. He says, "Well, you know, a couple of years ago, my son Andy started to complain about pains in his stomach. All the junk food kids eat today, I wasn't a bit surprised. But he kept on complaining. So I had a talk with Miriam, and we decided to take him to a doctor, just for an opinion. You understand?" Appendicitis, the doctor said. Miriam said, let's wait till tomorrow. The pain will go away. You know my Miriam. She can't stand the thought of an operation. That night when she went to bed, she cried herself to sleep. I went to the boys' room, picked him up, and took him to a hospital. Six hours later, his appendix was out. He was feeling better having an ice cream, and Miriam... Miriam was all smiles. You get my point? But it's this whole long thing to, to make a point of, you know, they're going to go the other way around and they're, they're going to take care of it and talk to the president themselves or something like that. But yeah, you could really mock that scene, you know, because it's just weird that all of a sudden he starts talking about this experience he had with his son and appendicitis and <laughs> just a lot, lot of little stuff like that that you could make fun of in a spoof movie, which I guess, you know, they, they had that bad... Uh, what was it called? The disaster movie or whatever. I didn't watch it, but I've seen a couple scenes. And yeah, that that spook movie isn't very good. But well, none of those were those those guys. They didn't get what comedy was. They were actually aliens that had misunderstood what humor was, and they thought, well, if you reference something and somebody else gets the reference, they will laugh. But luckily, they were sent back to their planet and put to death by their <laughs> alien overlords. And so there aren't more movies like Date Movie and Superhero Movie and Disaster Movie happening now. But Airplane, the guys that made Airplane, they understood comedy because that, that's still a classic. Yeah, Airplane is wonderful. I'd like to watch Zero Hour sometime 
just straight through just to see how it holds up because I've seen scene by scene comparisons and the dialogue is exactly the same. Yeah. But it is just the way that the dialogue is delivered in airplane makes it funny. Like the line that Leslie Nielsen has where he says, we need to find somebody on board who knows how to fly a plane and they can't have had fish for dinner. <laughs> That's actually a line from Zero Hour. Right. And Leslie Nielsen delivers it, and it's just so absurd. <laughs> but <laughs> Yeah, we'll have to come up with another disaster movie. to. Uh, we could do the Poseidon Adventure, I guess. But uh, yeah, we can, we can take a look and try to figure that out. I, j- I just watched that, so I feel like it's been too soon. But uh, if we can find one that we've both heard of and never seen or... From this era or from the or for the from the two thousand era? I think I would enjoy it more from that era a long time ago where they didn't spend two hundred million dollars on special effects. Right. Like for example, <laughs> I saw San Andreas just this past summer, and I turned it off after like the first ten minutes because it was so terrible. I mean, beyond terrible, you have to use profanity to describe the first 10 minutes of that movie. <laughs> but then, because I had checked it out, the movie, I you know, I felt obligated to start it up again the next day. And I watched it through to the end. And it, there are parts of it that are actually really, really good. And the special effects are, of course, really strong and top-notch. And uh, The Rock is a charismatic guy, and the women all look really good and in whatever tank tops they decide to put them in. But uh, the first 10 minutes is just so, so bad. (laughs) It didn't have any charm to it at all, but a movie in like 1974 would have charm to it, even if it were bad. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's, that's a challenge. We'll have to come up with another disaster movie to watch. (laughs) Yeah. Like my, my friend, who was a couple years older than me. He was a little bit older than you too. He grew up in the seventies, whereas I grew up in the eighties, but he talked about this movie called earthquake that was in sense around. And I've probably talked about it before on this show because he would always say sense around like that sense around. And basically (laughs) what they did is they took out like the back two rows of the seats in the theaters and replaced them with speakers with giant subwoofers that would shake all of the seats And it was a gimmick trying to get people to go to the movies. And they only made one or two movies in sense around and it didn't catch on. It was too expensive to retrofit your theaters for him. But he talked about going to see earthquake and whenever the, the earth quaked, the room would shake. And he talked about how thrilling that was. And I thought, wow, that does sound thrilling. And so I rented the DVD and it's not a very good movie, but of course I didn't see it in sense around. (laughs) I do remember though you and uh, you and Big went to a movie in uh, was it the D box or something like that? Yeah, we went and saw Battleship in D box, and it was a bad experience. I thought because the rumbles in the seat always made me think that somebody was kicking my seat in the row behind me, and the first couple of times that it happened, I would look behind me like, "What is this kid's problem?" And there was no <laughs> kid there. The movie was not good, but the experience was so distracting that I didn't enjoy it. I never went to another one like that. But having said that, if it was a movie that you already knew, 
like my cousin and I went and saw Raiders this past summer again. It got reissued. Paramount reissued it. Disney reissued Empire Strikes Back. And we got to go see that again on the big screen. If it was a movie like that where I knew it back and forth and I'm not going to get distracted by rumbling and and the, the seat moving back and forth, <laughs> um, it, I, I would enjoy that. Seeing the Millennium Falcon going through the asteroid field and your seat is dodging asteroids, I think would be really fun. But a movie that you didn't see the whole time, you'd be like, stop it. I'm trying to concentrate on the movie. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I did see Avatar in uh, the new 3D, but other than that, I've I haven't seen a movie in IMAX. I've been to IMAX places, you know, where they're showing a nature thing or you know something. So I've I've seen IMAX, but I've never gone to a movie that's filmed in IMAX or you know experienced the D box or anything like that. But I I would recommend it if. It's if if you don't care about the not being able to concentrate on the movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, and this past summer, Warner Brothers reissued a bunch of movies, and I mean, most of the studios did, but they never put Dark Knight out again. And Dark Knight was one of the first movies where they shot portions. They shot the action sequences in Dark Knight with IMAX cameras, and so the aspect ratio changes. And suddenly, you know, the, the, the screen got really, really big. If you saw it in IMAX, if you saw it in a regular theater, you wouldn't experience that. And I hoped that they would reissue it so I could see it in IMAX, but they didn't do it. And yeah, I, I, I can't name any movies that I've seen in, in IMAX. They tended to be really expensive. And when they first started, it was always like documentaries and stuff. Yeah, I think when I was in Hawaii, we you know we saw a few things in, in IMAX where they were you know going around the island or going underwater or something like that. But well, hey, we we managed to uh, talk for over an hour about media. We were kind of worried that uh, we weren't going to have enough material to talk about, but we always do. So <laughs> we didn't we didn't have a the plot really to drive us, but uh, there was enough to to talk about here where I. I I enjoyed it. It was fun to talk about this. Yeah, and and Connery, of course, is good in in every movie, even if it's a really bad movie. He he's just a likable persona on the screen. You enjoy watching him, and so yeah, the, I felt like the movie was worth watching, even though it was dull and and not very well put together. Yeah, and even the you know they have that love angle there between him and the translator, and I thought that worked really well too. It was kind of. You know, I remember when he first started hitting on her, I'm like, well, of course he's going to hit on the the most beautiful girl in the room. But can you name the original meteor that was hit by the comet that eventually broke broke apart and was coming toward Earth? It had a name? It had a name. Orpheus. Orpheus. Yeah. That was the name of the original asteroid that got hit, the big asteroid. You can tell I took notes on this one. <laughs> well, good. <laughs> anyway, anybody who's listening at home, feel free to recommend something that, that we should watch. I I mean, there are s- some movies like there's a movie called Birddemic that is a zero budget disaster movie with like the worst CG birds that you ever saw from, you know, the early 2000s that is notorious for being unwatchably bad, like the room level bad. 
And I don't think I'd want to sit down and watch that. <laughs> <laughs> there, there has to be something redeemable <laughs> in a movie like this. Uh, maybe not. I, if you got together with your friends and saw Birdemic, that would be fine, I guess. But I don't want to watch Birdemic by myself. Right. <laughs> Even if we make an episode out. That, speaking of birds, I didn't. did you know there was a Birds 2? Yeah, there was a made-for-television one. It had, like, Chelsea Field in it or something, and it, it was called The Birds 2 colon, like, The Return or The Something. Yeah, something like that. And, and, and I uh, believe that Tippi Hedren was in it. She was. She wasn't the same character, but she was in it. I thought when we were talking about Marnie and, and stuff like that, I was looking at her career, and I noticed that she was in Birds too. so I thought that was interesting. I don't know if that's something I'd want to watch, but... Well, if we ever get around to watching The Birds, the Hitchcock one, it'll be just a natural conversation of maybe we should watch the sequel. I did rent a bunch of Hitchcock, his old, old movies, so that we could have something to talk about, because I wanted to watch uh, The Man Who Knew Too Much, the original Right. And then maybe watch the Jimmy Stewart version and compare and contrast. Because it's fun to compare and contrast. Uh, but I never got around to watching any of those. Yeah, I remember you sent me the, the list of all the movies on there. And I'm like, wow, <laughs> there's quite a few. Yeah, so if, if you want to recommend something to us, the only thing we ask is that it's PG-13 or lower. Probably. Or X. Or X, yeah. <laughs> Skip right over the R. Just can't be R. <laughs> <laughs> NC-17, just fine. No problem. <laughs> it's like, yeah, Marshall, I think you'd really like the movie. The only downside is it's rated triple X. I, I don't know if you have a problem with that, but uh, you also can't say the name of the movie uh, ah. on the show. <laughs> but uh, yeah, let us know and feel free to support Journey Into on Patreon. Sometimes... Marshall will give people uh, polls there, options to vote for what to do on his podcast next or what to watch next. Uh, and lately he's been giving bonus episodes that only the Patreon supporters get. Yeah, I try to try to put some things in there to make it worth your while. Yeah, so you can go to patreon.com slash journey into if you'd like to contribute there. If you want to get a hold of us on the voicemail line, you can call 77 j into 107 and if you just want to send us an email you can go to journey into podcast at gmail.com uh, journey into on twitter and i believe you can get to it if you look at journey into on facebook as well and then rish you have your own podcast that you do called the rish outcast and that has a patreon as well so that's patreon.com slash Rich Outfield. Yeah, it is appreciated. And and you also put extra stuff on there. And uh, like, you know, we both do a Patreon message every month just for the patrons. So, yeah, lots of good stuff on there. Well, we have reached the end of our podcast, and I hope that people enjoyed it and look forward to more. Uh, we will do our best to get more of these episodes out in this new year and uh, always watch the skies. Hey, Rich. Uh, why don't you stick a room up my ass? I could sweep the carpet on the way out.
Why do you like that line? I just thought it was so weird that he would just come up with that all of a sudden. But All right. Good night, Marshall. Thank you. Good night, everybody, and good luck. <laughs> We're all counting on you. I just want you to know. <laughs> We're all counting on you. So, the Creative Commons license. You know, I remember years ago when my kids were all young and we were all in the house on a Saturday and my son was goofing around and he ran his head directly into the corner of a banister. You know, that's kind of like trying to alter the audio from this podcast or trying to make money off of it. It's a bad thing to do. Just like my son running his head into a banister. I remember there was a big gash in his head, and he just grabbed his head and laid down and cried. Well, you know, I, I ran down to help him. I felt bad for him. You know, there's nothing wrong with goofing around at home, but just, you know, lift up your head and see where you're going. <laughs> you know, just, just like there's nothing wrong with downloading this podcast or sharing it with your friends. Just make sure you give it the proper attribution. Well, I took my son to the urgent care, and and they glued his scalp back together where the gash was. (laughs) No stitches or anything. Just super glue for his head. Healed up great. You know, when I think about it, it's kind of like what the Creative Commons license is for this podcast. Super glue for the gash in your head. You get my point? I don't know what the hell you are talking about. Well, I never knew the the fear of it ever existed until I read the original uh, idea of the script, and, and it was only when one found out that it had been um, taken up by the uh, Institute of Technology of Massachusetts and that they found it sufficiently uh, considerable and frightening to uh, want to go ahead and do some uh, investigations about it. And then the combinations of that and being bringing the Russian and the American element made for a very interesting type of movie. I'd never done a movie of that genre, you know, the disaster movie before. But once we introduced the elements of Natalie coming in as a Russian, speaking Russian, Russian and Brian Keith and everything, I thought it has a, it's a different sort of uh, disaster. The worst aspect of the um, meteor was the mud, uh, only because I don't like the idea of going under and uh, there were so many of us involved in so many scenes, you know, there was 20, 30 of us going through the underground and the mud was like four or five feet deep. And if you slipped, I mean, you couldn't see anybody underneath and uh, it got in your ear, up your nose, and uh, it wasn't very pleasant. That was really, it was more uh, wearing piece to do than, say, jumping around the top of the train and uh, the great train robber.
uh, making fun of. I think Robert Ebert. Robert Ebert said uh, he didn't know whether. Roger. What did I say? Say Roger Ebert. Oh, oh, I said Robert. That's weird. Yeah. Uh, Million dollars. So it cost almost once and and a half more than once over what's what's or you know one point five times what started. In 1968, at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, a plan was designed to deal with the possibility of a giant meteor on a collision course with Earth. This plan is named Project Icarus. 